Simple question. When your life feels like collapse, what do you do? When life feels like it's collapsing around you, in your circumstances, what do you do? Where do you turn? To whom or what do you run when it feels like collapse? Because we all get there in life. Doesn't matter how old you are, what experiences you may or may not have. Nowadays, live past the age of 10, and it's easy to get to a place that feels like collapse. And truth be told, we all get to that place. And it doesn't even take a total collapse of everything possible to feel in one's life like it's collapsed, does it? It doesn't take everything. It takes anything to feel like collapse. It may be something as relatively small as the day-to-day experience of the limits of our human power to manage our hardships. Collapse can even feel as relatively, quote, small as experiencing the limitations of our humanly power and control to manage everyday hardships. And we've all been there. We all live there. We've all experienced that kind of uh, collapse in life. Maybe you've experienced uh, what feels like financial collapse, perhaps. You've defaulted on a loan. You've had a car repoed. You've lost the business. You've had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, Maybe you're negative for like the thousandth time in the one account you have, and you see no way out. Maybe you've experienced uh, something like a career collapse. You've lost a job. You need a job. You've been looking for a job. You can't find a job. Maybe you're in school trying to to do better for yourself and your family, to build a career, working hard to build a career. The grades aren't what you hope. The work is too much. You don't get enough sleep. And you find that that, that keeping the plates spinning between school and work and raising a family means that the idea of a career, a someday being used in ways that you want to be entrained for, feels like a faint dream of the past. That feels like collapse for some people. Um, Maybe you've experienced... Uh, like I feel like I do, not as much as my wife, but maybe you've experienced what I'm going to call the perpetual state of daily parental collapse. Like you've got that kid or kids, some of you as many as five, six, seven crazy people. No, really, we've got lots of families with five, six or... okay. So maybe it's that kid or kids who never listen, who are frustrating beyond measure, and and your spouse is either uh, emotionally not there or is of very little help or is off at work, and not to mention having to do the laundry and the dishes and the cleaning and the errands. And the laundry and the dishes and the cleaning and the errands. Makes you feel like you're in this (laughs) perpetual state of, um, you know, I, I can't even. Maybe you're experiencing uh, a physical collapse. I know many, many people in our congregation uh, are experiencing this now. Uh, people sitting around you are. Uh, maybe you're experiencing a physical collapse. Your body's in decay. You're not getting better. And you live with that. There's no cure. The prognosis is not good. And you're just biding time for the inevitable. I know many in our congregation 
have experienced relational collapse, a marriage that failed, a friendship or friendships that go sour, a family that, that has rejected you and continues to reject you. I mean, we could go on and on and on with circumstances in our everyday lives that feel like this looks. And we're just talking about the normal, everyday frustrations of life. These are the kinds of things everybody experiences. So as we read Lamentations, and we look into the lives of a people whose entire world was collapsing around them. The question for us today is the same as it was for them. When life feels like collapse, where do you go? To whom do you run? To what do you turn? Because you see, the, the people of God in Lamentations were, were there. They were at total collapse. <laughs> and this wasn't exactly what we just characterized in our own lives as, as everyday hardships and suffering. What they were experiencing was a total collapse. Their city, their temple, their entire nation, their entire system of worship and sacrifice on which they depended for their relationship with God, all of that, all their hopes and dreams were dashed because everything was in ruins in a pile in front of them at the end of the siege by the Babylonians on fire as they watched it. Their whole lives had gone down in rubble. And not just sort of a spiritual chaos, not just feeling sort of untethered spiritually and the death of hope, but we're talking, they were being sucked dry by their attackers of all of their resources of food and water. Cannibalism had set in with some people in that city. This was a long-term siege by foreign powers. And the people of God were in this place of total collapse. And even though we here in East Tennessee don't suffer from that kind of total collapse, like the book of Lamentations, the question for them is the same as the question for us today. When life is collapsing around you, where do you go? And in Lamentations, as we'll see here in these verses we just read, we're going to read through all of them again and then go back through and give some context one by one. As we'll see in these pages in Lamentations 4, the people of God turned to the wrong place here. They continued to struggle with learning to turn to the Lord as their portion. Read along with me the last part of Lamentations 4 here. We're just going to look at 17 through 20. And we're going to see two things here, how the Israelites turned to the wrong place and what happened. How they turned to the wrong place and what happened. It says this. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dug our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations." Jump back to verse 17. It says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Notice that he is writing here in verse 17 uh, from what we'll call the, the we perspective. He was speaking on behalf of the entire nation. And the, the pronoun here changes to we and our. Listen, it says, 
Our eyes failed. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Jeremiah is admitting here on behalf of all the people that they looked in vain for earthly help instead of waiting on God's deliverance. That's the whole, me- that's the whole message today. The people of God looked in vain for horizontal earthly help instead of waiting on God's Deliverance. They looked, he says, with such passion for earthly deliverance, ever watching vainly, he says. They looked with such passion for earthly deliverance that he says their eyes failed. Like, like, they, were, like they were so focused on it, their eyes began to, to, to not work. They had been focused on it for so long. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, but I can remember as a kid around Christmas, even for the days leading up to it, uh, first thing in the morning, uh, I would get up in the morning and I would run to the window uh, to look to see if there was any snow. And I watched in vain because what kid from Los Angeles, California expects snow? Actually, we lived in East Tennessee, so I had learned that snow can come at Christmas, but I kept doing it in Los Angeles. The people of God were, in a, were in a sense, doing the same kind of thing, waiting Every morning, waking up, looking out this window for help from a nation, uh, Jeremiah tells us, which could not save. In this case, that nation was Egypt, which did not worship God. So did they really expect Egypt Egypt, to, to, to help with them and to keep their word and to be anything other than a traitor? <laughs> so that's the nation to whom they looked for help. And Jeremiah says they looked in vain. Look at verse 18. This is actually what happened because they aligned with a worldly power, because they aligned with Egypt. This is a description of what happened with their attackers, the Babylonians. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our own streets weren't safe, he says. Three times he says, our end drew near. Our days were numbered. Our end had come. Certainly the end was near. And then he says this, our pursuers, and by this he means, as I said, the Babylonians who were attacking them, they had aligned politically with the Egyptians to help them from the Babylonians, but the Babylonians were the ones attacking them. And so he's referring here in verse 18 to the Babylonians as our pursuers in 19, who were swifter than the, than the eagles in the heavens. It says they chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. So, so not only did they align with a worldly power that ended up being a traitor, Egypt, but they also underestimated the power of the attackers, the Babylonians. And not only that, but look at verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. In other words, our own king who we think keeps us safe and gives us life. The Lord's anointed, by the way, is another way of saying the king. It's used a lot that way in Scripture. The Lord's anointed is another way of saying the king. So the king, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, our king was captured by them. This was the king of whom we said, verse 20, this is significant right here. This is a significant statement, an admission of over-dependence on earthly power. Under his shadow, the shadow of the king, we shall live among the nations. Under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. This king is going to bring us the power and security and safety we need on earth. To be under the shadow of someone is to be under their care in Scripture. It's like being under the wing of a, of a mama bird 
who's keeping its children safe. Uh, This is an image used a lot in Scripture uh, to speak of God as caring for his people. This is an image used a lot to talk about God shepherding and taking care of his people. But notice here how the people have hoped that a human king would care for them. This is the kind of statement that should apply to, to God and his care for people. But they said, turns out we had, we had relied on a king. So to summarize what's going on here, notice this. This is how bad it got, and this is why it got there. Not only did they align with a foreign power, Egypt, but they were being taken over by another foreign power, the Babylonians. And now that foreign power had control of their king in whom they had foolishly placed their hopes and dreams. Friends, this is a picture in Lamentations of total collapse. This comes toward the end of the Old Testament. So the sin of the people of God, individually and corporately, over many generations, had resulted in a total collapse because they had looked everywhere except for their relationship with God for provision. In the long history of God's people, when they experienced suffering and hardship and pain, They too often turned away from God and toward false gods and other nations and sought comfort from worldly powers and political alliances. This collapse of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. toward the end of the Old Testament was just the very latest and and, and the worst of such examples in history. So this this picture in Lamentations is, is a picture of total collapse and devastation and chaos. It's a picture of what can happen in our lives as it did in theirs when our relationship with God takes a back seat to all other means of dependence and provision. Lamentations is a picture of what happens when we depend on everything and everyone or anything and anyone other than God. Now, for a few weeks now, it's been a bit depressing. Let's just go ahead and say it out loud. We've talked about collapse a lot. And we've looked at examples of how the people of God, and likewise we, have depended upon earthly powers, our own means, our own successes, our own methods uh, for deliverance and for safety and for security. Uh, I want us to look at uh, an, an example that gives some color for us Uh, And this is where we're going to continue to head throughout the sermon here. Uh, Some color for us to what dependence upon God can look like even in the midst of hardship and suffering. Let's watch this. Hello, my name is Kathy Job, and I want to tell you about how God took me from bitterness to patience. I was my husband's caretaker for 16 years. From 1998, when he had bladder cancer, until December 2014, when he died at 91. It was a long, long journey. I didn't want the job. 
I always insisted that he make his own dental appointments and his own doctor appointments, appointments, and I just got to stay out of it. But finally, it was really serious. He had stage three bladder cancer, and he had huge kidney stones that worried the doctors at Duke, and he had glaucoma. Once the cycle of illness began, there seemed to be no end. And Gail needed someone to help him, especially after the day when one morning all the vision in his left eye vanished in an instant when he had what is called a central retinal vein occlusion. It's like having a stroke in the back of your eye. Frankly, filling out forms is not my favorite thing to do either. Poor, poor me. I, Gail needed my help and I had to help him. But I had to do things I didn't want to do. Over time, he developed more problems. He had more kidney stones, he had pneumonia, he had a hernia, a fractured humerus that never ever healed, and he fell over and over and over. Then a couple of super serious and deadly infections came from nowhere. Hearing the hospitalists say, Mrs. Job, you should consider hospice was a cruel thing to hear. And I was just terrified. But he was healed again. He he survived and the cure for that one though was he had to have a pick line and he had to go to a nursing home. And while he was in that nursing home, a cruel sadistic man who was a caretaker there injured him by picking him up and putting him on a portable toilet. By this time his vision was completely gone and there was no way that we could know who it was. Were we bitter? Yes, we were bitter. But Gail and I wanted God in our marriage even before we were married we wanted God to be a part of our marriage and we couldn't be mad at God he had so patiently and carefully nurtured us and uh, so we couldn't get mad at him but it was the relentlessness of one thing after another after another over those years that uh, made me feel bitter but God was just as relentless in loving us and taking care of us and reminding us that he was there all the time. Being a caretaker is the hardest thing I have ever done. I had four children. It's harder than that. It crowds out everything else you'd really rather be doing. You become a nurse, a bather, a scheduler. You have to be his or her advocate on and on and on and on you have to do things that you don't want to do but there's a point when I realized there was no one else who could do it as well as I could Um, and I praise God for that I praise God that he loves us and he kept us always uh, in his arms and that is what I hope for every caretaker 
we went from bitterness to patience. My husband uh, demonstrated that when he decided not to pursue any kind of legal action against that man or against the facility. He refused to ruin a man's life when he wasn't absolutely positively sure he could identify it. Instead, he forgave him. Thank you all. sharing your story with us. <clears throat> Kathy said something uh, real important in there. Uh, she said there was a point at which she realized um, that in essence God had situated her because she was the one who could care for him best. This was a situation which for many, many years is the kind of hardship and pain that we experience that can come out one of two ways, friends. When it comes to the pain and the hardship and the suffering of our lives, when it comes to those situations we would call collapse, our response can be either bitterness or patience. We all experience suffering. And our response will ultimately become bitterness, which is a hardness of heart, that refuses to listen to God and to give into his process of growth for us or a softness of heart that we'll hear from God that we could call patience. Suffering and pain in life takes us one of those two places, friends. And the difference is a truth I want us to understand today. That, that is a truth that if we understand and apply in our lives, it's a truth that can make the difference for us between those two, bitterness or patience. This is what the people of God were being called to learn. And this is what Kathy and Gail Job had learned and what I believe God is asking us all to learn. And it's simply this. Character is formed in the crucible of suffering. Character is formed in the crucible of suffering. Personal character and godliness don't come another way. Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking <laughs> something to the effect of, what in the world is a crucible and how can I avoid being in one? <laughs> if character is formed in the crucible of suffering, what's a crucible and how can I avoid it? I want to close by, by telling you a little bit about what I mean with this. Um, a crucible is a container that is able to withstand extremely high temperatures and it can melt the contents of whatever is inside it. It's used in lots of applications. Oftentimes it's in various sizes um, and applications, but often it's used in a lab. The gist is that a crucible is able to withstand extremely high temperatures so that it can melt the contents of whatever is inside it and is usually used to melt what we call an ore, O-R-E. And just to make sure we're on the same bus, headed the same direction. Uh, an ore is a naturally occurring solid material from which a metal or a valuable mineral can be extracted. Okay? So we've got a crucible which can withstand super high temperatures. And you've got ore, a naturally occurring solid material from which a metal or valuable can be extracted. And here's the key, because here's what a crucible does. 
It's designed to keep the ore in the area where the heat is concentrated so that the impurities in the ore can be separated from the good stuff. Friends, it is those areas of life that are hardest where we experience the highest concentration of heat that God wants to use to refine us of impurities. You see, friends, character is formed slowly with great difficulty and at great cost. We would all like to think otherwise. (laughs) Uh, That personal character and godliness can be formed easily and with little personal cost as possible. In fact, many of us have that kind of a trajectory in life, right? Like we live with this assumption. I'm good with whatever God is asking me as long as it doesn't cost me more than, well, I am comfortable spending. And now we're preaching because that's where a lot of people live. Many of us live with the assumption, I'm good with whatever God wants to ask of me, as long as it doesn't cost me more than I am comfortable spending. But friends, that's not how it works, because character doesn't just happen. For the follower of Jesus, godly character comes through sitting in the crucible. Sure, you can take yourself out if you'd like. But you'll continue to go directions you will regret. Godly character comes through the crucible of learning to depend on God alone through the intense heat of your life. So that what is left is a little more like God and a little less like you. So please, friends, stop living under the fairy tale. That personal growth and development in godliness is easy. Because it's not. Don't be surprised when life is hard and God calls you to things that are more like sitting in this crucible. We like the Jesus who who spreads roses on the bed and and chocolate-covered cherries on the pillow. We don't like following the Jesus that goes through suffering and hardship to the cross. But that's what we're called to follow. That's who we're called to turn to. To reject this truth that character comes in the crucible of suffering is to become over time bitter and to reject God's process of growth. Let me say that again because it's hard. But I think it's true. To reject this truth... That character comes in the crucible of hardship is to become bitter and to reject God's process of growth for us. To accept this truth. Because listen, friends, the world's messed up. It's broken. There's sin. You won't get away from hardship and suffering and pain. You will only hold off its effects temporarily until you can't bear them later. To accept the truth that growth and godliness comes through the crucible of suffering is to embrace hard things and to learn to deal with them as they come. That is what accepting God's personal growth process looks like. Because we can accept them as opportunities to learn and grow or we can reject them and not grow. (laughs) But here, here's the thing. Listen, 
You can't stop it from happening. You can't stop hardship and pain and frustration and suffering from happening. You can only learn to deal with them in a godly fashion that makes you patient. Patient. 